0: We live kind of a weird time, a weird society. I don't know if you've actually realized it, but, but our whole culture is very results-based. It's results-based. And as a result of that, our culture is driven by success. You know, I've found that one of the biggest sources of anxiety within people in our culture, results-based, driven to succeed. Our biggest fear is failure. If you Google fear of failure, article after article after article will surface addressing this issue. You see, no one, no one wants to be a failure. No one wants to fail. There's something deeply embarrassing when the world tags you as being a loser. And since success is the ultimate remedy to being a failure, becoming so intertwined with our identity and our self-worth that people, to succeed, they work harder, smarter, longer. They work with more tenacity and energy and effort. Fear of failing promotes people to make incredible sacrifices and restructure all types of priorities to succeed. Tragically, this same psychological intertwining of one's pride and success is not just limited to a person's career. I don't know if you can sympathize with this, but people fear failing as a parent or as a spouse. People fail fail letting their parents down. People fear failing their friends, those who depend on them. I have found that people, if they're honest, would admit that they even fear failing God. And and it's this point that that I'd I'd like to just illustrate the reality that it's fear of failing that ends up becoming the principal driver of legalism. Because people don't want to fail God, because people don't want to be seen as a failure, it's so easy to create for ourselves a metric by which we can now measure success. It's called legalism. Self-made points that we can live up to, feel good about. Here's the irony of of legalism. These created man-made traditions, they end up being tailored in such a way that the tradition makers, their success is all but guaranteed, while the rest of people live in this constant feeling that they can never measure up. Like like understand church tradition. Things like the pro- prohibition of alcohol. The fact that Christians can't dance. You know, which was instituted by white people. <laughs> traditions traditions like you got to come to church in your Sunday best. Suit and tie. Only for God. It's not biblical, it's a tradition. A tradition like, you know, we only, around these parts, we only read through the King James Version, the old one, because that's what Jesus read. That's <laughs> just that's a tradition. The, the refusal to listen to secular music, or kissing, dating, goodbye, banning HBO, or the refusal to watch R-rated movies. On and on and on this list could go. Church traditions are created, and here's why. They're created as a way that Christians can measure their spiritual success so they don't feel like a failure. Well, I did all these things. You You know, the truth is that a legalist is easily identifiable because they will always, initially, point to a number of things they do or they don't do as evidence of their spiritual prowess. You bump into these people all the time. I'm a great Christian. I've never had a drop of alcohol touch these lips. Well, that means you're not Christ-like because he drank good wine. Like, what does that matter? You, you, have, you have Christians that, that have a pride And the fact that it's like, you know, it's for me and my house. The only television show we let our kids watch is Fixer Upper. (laughs) Because Chip and Joe are just great Christian influences. And that's the only thing that we let our kids watch. You bump into people that are like, you see these lips? They're virgin lips. And it's like, your life is stupid. That's a bummer. But there's a pride in it that they've never done these things. They're succeeding. We don't have our kids in public school, we only homeschool. Okay? We don't let our kids date. We don't use tobacco products at our house because, you know, our body's the temple of the living God. But it's totally okay for you to eat McDonald's. Which is also killing you. It's, it's just a weird way that we set ourselves up. More recently I've heard this kind of beginning to circulate. I don't do yoga. And you know why? Because that's how you let demons into your body. No, it's not. that's that, no. But on a side note, the only yoga pose that I'll do is the dead dog. I can just lay on my, my back and go to sleep. How about this one? I've heard this one. I would absolutely never wear a hat in church, yet alone lead worship with one on. the irony is that the Bible actually exhorts men to wear hats in church as a sign of respect. And yet we have this tradition. And why do we have these traditions? So that we can obey something, that we can measure ourselves to something, that we can do something so I don't feel like a failure. And yet here's the problem with creating a list of legalistic traditions in order to measure spiritual success. As we'll see this morning, in a way that God addresses a fear that Abraham has, your failure, your inability to succeed, I hope you know this, is a central, non-negotiable component of the gospel message. If you could succeed, Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. You see, legalism is dangerous because it promotes personal success when the power of the gospel only manifests in the presence of a broken sinner who has accepted his never-ending failure. If you came this morning, a failure, i got a word for you. Let's look, Genesis 15, beginning with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, This one, speaking of Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, shall be your heir. Then God brought him outside and said, look, Abram, now towards heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. I like how this all opens. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. At this point in Abram's journey with God, this is the sixth, interaction that Abram's had with God. And yet it's this six, we see something brand new. We're told the word of the Lord came to Abram, how? In a vision. In the Hebrew, <clears throat> this word vision, the original language, it's unique. It actually presents kind of an exchange with God, unlike all others. In actuality, the only other place we see this word in scripture is in Numbers chapter 24, a very weird exchange with a guy named Balaam. What the word vision indicates is that Abram is awake. He's fully conscious. And yet in some way, in a supernatural sense, his mortal man has been enraptured in a state of spiritual ecstasy. It's true. What he's going to see is pretty trippy. Now, the, the text doesn't tell us what he's seeing. It's a vision. It doesn't say what he's actually seeing in this vision. But we are told what he hears. God says to him, do not be afraid. (laughs) Why would God come to Abram, the word of the Lord, to calm Abram's fear? Why would that happen? (laughs) And the answer, because he's afraid. That's why that's what the Lord says. And and I want to just take a minute and consider what Abram may have been afraid of at this point in his life. Now, It seems logical that Abram might have feared some type of retribution from a man named Ched Lamar. In the previous chapter, Abraham launches this sneak attack. He ends up rescuing his nephew Lot, drives Ched Lamar and his four-nation coalition as far as Damascus. Abraham comes back. It could be that he's afraid that there's gonna be some type of retribution. There's no way that I'm... I'm going to be able to stand against these guys in an open public conflict. And yet, while that might be true, the text itself seems to imply, it insinuates, that Abram's fear ran much deeper than this. It should be pointed out, for the first time in Abram's life, we've been looking at it, we've been traveling with Abram, for the first time, should be noted, he's been on a pretty good streak Like, he's been doing the right things. He demonstrates bravery by rescuing Lot. He shows kindness by liberating those from Sodom who had been taken captive along with Lot. Abram then wisely resists the urge to keep the spoils, choosing instead to return them to the king of Sodom. Like, Abram is finally in the land. He's walking with God. He's receiving the blessings of God. I mean, what at this point could Abram possibly fear? You know, it's with these things in mind and in the context of the passage itself that I believe it's in this season of of Abram's life that he fears two things. One, he's afraid that God might fail him. And he feared that he would fail God. Two fears. Let's let's begin with this this fear that God might fail him. Look, Look back at the text. Notice what Abram says to God. Lord, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar? You've given me no offspring. One born in my house is my heir. You know, Abram rightly understood that the whole crux of God's promise Promises that God had given Abram. that, That it was all about providing a Savior. And that Savior would come from his lineage, which would make a biological son essential. He would need an heir for the Savior to be provided. And yet, despite walking with God at this juncture for around 15 years, that promise to have a son, that God would grow into a nation, to provide a Savior. That promise had failed to materialize. Abram, he remains childless, pointing out even that his current heir is someone that's not even born to him, this Eleazar from Damascus. It's almost as though in this passage, Abram's confronting God. Got to give him some credit for boldness, for some honesty. God comes and says, do not be afraid. And he's like, yeah, but I got a lot of reasons to be afraid. And he steps up. He's like, what's the deal, Lord? I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I'm quite old. My wife, well, she's also not a spring chicken either. She's barren. Like we're way beyond childbearing years, but you promised to give me a son. Like, as a matter of fact, like, all of your promises to me are contingent upon me having a son. And yet what's happening? Nothing. It's as though Abram's like, God, the window seems pretty closed. Having a son at this point, pretty impossible. Like, all of this seems to, like, create this mounting evidence that your promises might not actually come to fruition. Now, look at how God deals with this fear. Three things. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot them down. First, God initiates a conversation. Only to then proceed to remind Abram of his faithfulness, past and present, before finally reiterating the exact same promise again. Let's kind of unpack those for a minute. First, I love it. God initiates this conversation. Like, why In this instance, does the word of the Lord come to Abram? Had Abram voiced a complaint to God? We don't have that in the text. Did this happen because of some marathon prayer meeting that Abram was having with the boys? So God answers, no. Also not told that. God comes and speaks. This command for Abram to not be afraid occurred for one reason. God knew what was happening inside of Abram. He knew what was happening in his heart. I find it fascinating and in many ways encouraging that God didn't wait for Abram to bring his fears to him. Nor did God sit back and allow Abram's fears to fester before they finally boiled over. Instead, what does God do? God sees into Abram's heart and he takes the lead. He comes to him in this vision and he speaks with him with the specific purpose of addressing what was going on in his heart. Now, admittedly if this was all that the word of the lord communicated to abram if all god was doing here was acknowledging that abram was afraid thanks but no thanks right like nice stating the obvious god i'm afraid you are acknowledging that i'm fearful like that would have even been counterproductive i mean telling someone to chill out without providing them a reason to chill it doesn't calm an anxious heart And yet God, he not only initiates this conversation, acknowledging what's happening inside of Abram, but notice what he does. God then seeks to diffuse this fear by reminding Abram of his past and present faithfulness. Look at what God says. He says, do not be afraid. Why? Why am I telling you not to be afraid? Because I am your shield. I love the original Hebrew word shield, mainly because the English translation doesn't paint a complete picture. The word here is megan. Or or literally, it refers to the scaly hide of of a crocodile. Like in this instance, the idea of a shield wasn't so much of a tool that you would use for self-defense. Rather, it was a garment you wore to defend yourself. God's point here saying that, Abram, I'm your shield. Like it's to illustrate that because of God's covering, God had protected him. It illustrated his past faithfulness. You know, while Abram feared what God had yet to do, that was the essence of his fear. The reality was that his fear had developed because he had lost sight of what God had already done. Don't fear bubble to the surface as a result of these things. God called Abram to embark on a journey with him. Really? At what point had God not come through in the past? At this point, God has a good track record. Man, I've been your shield. It's as though God is saying to Abram, bro, I called you. In fact, my love has protected you. It's preserved you. I've been your shield. (laughs) My plan I've preserved my plan even when your actions would have proved detrimental. Remember your detour in Haran? My grace covered you. When you went to Egypt without consulting me, my grace protected you. Even during that conflict with Chedlamar, I acted as your shield. I gave you the victory. Abram, I know you're afraid, but don't forget how far I've brought in you and that I've proven to be trustworthy. That's not all God says. He says, Do not be afraid, I'm your shield. Also, I am your exceedingly great reward. Once again, our English translation butchers the original Hebrew, this, this phrase, great reward. In the Hebrew, the word is sakar, which described passage money, could be translated as hire or wages. Not only had God acted in the past as Abram's shield of protection. But at no point in this journey with God had Abram found himself detached or separated from the presence of God. Abram didn't leave Ur way back when because of the promises that God had made. Now, no doubt, they played a role. But you should understand that Abram left Ur for one reason. God invited him to engage on a journey with him. His reward wasn't the promise. The reward was God himself. I'm going to say something that's going to sound so simple it's stupid, but it's still profound. Never forget the joy of walking with God is that you're walking with God. How crazy is that? That God is walking with you. In the place of fear and worry that God's promises might not materialize, Abram is being reminded that the God of the universe who spoke all things into existence, who made man from the dust of the earth, that God involved in his life. I mean, really, what reason would Abram have to be afraid that God would now let him down? In a sense, what God is pointing out is that this fear, the real It was unfounded. Well, thirdly, after initiating the conversation and reminding Abram of his past and present faithfulness, what does God do? Blows me away, but all God does is he reiterates the same promise. That's all he does. He initiates a conversation reminding Abram of things about himself, only to then just reiterate the same promise. God begins by making it clear Eleazar would not be his heir. That was a fear. That ain't gonna happen. Why? Well, because there's gonna be one who will be an heir that will come from your body. In a sense, God is just restating the same promise He had given Abraham in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 13. He's reaffirming His commitment that a Savior would come through Abram's seed, as impossible as it seemed in the moment. God's plan was still intact. It was still a go. The plan was for Abram and Sarai to conceive and bear a son of promise. And in order to illustrate just the the magnitude of what God was still gonna do, he tells Abram, come on outside. Look up into the sky. You see those stars? Try to count them. You can't. That is what your descendants will be like. More than you can even number. You don't think I can do it. Oh, I'm gonna do it. I still have a plan. Notice that while God initiates the conversation, reminds him of his past and present faithfulness to diffuse his fear, in the end, God's promise for Abram doesn't change. God here, he doesn't provide an explanation to Abram as to how God was going to accomplish this promise. Nor does God provide some new insight, some new nugget, so that Abram realizes, right, how this is all going to unfold, to temper his fear. God's promises, they didn't change. They're uttered the same because God would still require Abram believe in spite of the fears he presently possessed. I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. With the promise, you're going to have to trust me, man. Once again, we see that Abram believed and God accounted this belief to him for righteous, which makes it obvious that this exchange and even the core nature of Abram's fear ran much deeper than him having a son and that son becoming a nation. And how do we know this? I hope you realize this morning that the only belief that God will account on one's behalf for righteousness is a faith in Jesus a faith in a Savior who atones for sin, while at the same time imputes his righteousness to one's account. This promise is what Abram believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, before we move on, I just want to ask you a very personal question. I want you to chew on this. Are there specific promises that God has made to you that haven't come to fruition? And I'm not going to stand here and provide examples. Because those promises are going to be different. They're going to be unique and they're going to be particular to you. Has God made a promise to you that hasn't manifested? And like Abram, because of that delay, maybe do you find yourself this morning sitting here afraid that God is going to fail you? That he's not going to make good? First, while God might not explain to you how or when he's going to accomplish that work. And he's probably not even going to reveal to you why the fulfillment of that promise has not yet manifested. He didn't do that with Abram. He might not with you. But even then, I hope you know that God is fully aware of what's happening in your heart. He doesn't rebuke Abram from being afraid. He meets him in his fear. He meets him where he's at. He'll do the same for you and he has a very simple message. I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. Do you really have a reason to be afraid? Please consider, has God failed you yet? Has he failed you in the past? Is he not with you this very moment? Has he not, Proven his faithfulness? Never forget, Abram was able to believe God and hold fast to God's promises because he remembered that God had proven himself worthy of his trust and his confidence. Hold fast, friend. And yet, as mentioned, Abram had two fears, right? Abram was not only afraid that God might fail to make good on his promises, But Abram was also afraid that he would fail God. Verse 7 Then God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. And Abram said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? It's interesting. God does something fascinating. He stakes the fulfillment of his promise to provide a savior, he places that burden on no one other than himself. Like like, Look at it again. He says, I am the Lord, and I will give you the land to inherit. Abram did nothing to earn the promise, nor could he do a thing to see the promise manifest. The promise was given by God and was therefore dependent on God. This work was something that only God would be able to accomplish. And yet, as you can imagine, that might have seemed a little too good to be true. Because look at how Abram replies to that. He says, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Like, like, you see, Abram is not doubting God's ability to give. I know you can do that. What is he doubting? He's doubting instead his ability to receive. You're going to give it. My concern is, will I inherit it? Because it's as though he's saying, you're going to give this land. But what if I mess up? What if I blow it? What if I fail to live up to my end of the bargain? You know, this is is the irony. the, The irony of these two fears of Abram. Think of it like this. Would God fail Abram? Absolutely not. God's promises were sure to the end. But would Abram fail God? Absolutely. Absolutely. He would fail and fail miserably. <laughs> Just look at the next chapter. And yet, because God wouldn't fail Abram, Abram's failures wouldn't matter. Like we're going to see this illustrated in the next several verses. But the fulfillment of God's promises were solid. Here's why. Because they weren't predicated upon Abram and his propensity to be a failure. Look at verse 9. So God says to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer. It's the only time you can really say heifer and get away with it. A three-year-old female goat. A three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, young pigeon. Abram brought these to God and cut them in two. Down the middle, Place each piece on the other side of each other. He did not cut the birds in two. Now, that's weird and very trippy, and I should just explain that what we have here is an ancient way of signing a deal, reaching an agreement, sealing a covenant The animals would be cut into two pieces, sliced down the middle, their carcasses laid on either side. What would be produced would be this bloody pathway between the carcasses. And then as each member of this party entering into an agreement, a covenant, they would walk through the bloody pathway declaring that they would uphold their end of the deal or this blood, this innocent blood would be attributed to them pretty serious way. Imagine if that's what you had to go through to get a mortgage. (laughs) In those days, they actually called the process making a covenant. We'll see that the Lord made a covenant. It's literally that the Lord cut a covenant. It's the cutting of a covenant. Verse 11, so the vultures come down on the carcasses. Abram drives them away. The sun goes down. A deep sleep falls on Abram. And behold, horror, great darkness fell on him. And he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants, God speaking, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will serve them. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, after this judgment, they will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they, uh, his descendants, shall return to the land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, before this covenant is sealed, God provides Abram this prophetic insight into what's going to happen as it pertains to he and his descendants. Now, in regards to Abram, God's like, you're going to die, it'll be a good old age, and then you'll go to be with your fathers. As for your descendants, it's going to be kind of a crazy road. They're going to leave the land. They're going to go, and we know this looking in hindsight, that what takes place, they go to Egypt, and they end up being enslaved and afflicted in Egypt for 400 years until God ultimately delivers them by judging this people, right? Bringing them back to the land with great possessions. What's interesting about all of this is that God, in this prophecy, he actually explains why that detour was part of his will. He says that the children of Israel will be in Egypt for four generations. Why? Specifically in order to provide the Amorites time to repent of their iniquity. Now, this is all a side point. But though God would use the Israelites to later judge the nations of Canaan, what this tells us is that judgment would only come after God had given these wicked people ample time to repent. 400 years. God gives them to repent before he ultimately judges, which is a manifestation of God's grace. Verse 17 what is more pertinent to us this morning. It came to pass, when the sun went down, it was dark, that behold, this is where this vision gets trippy, a smoking oven and a burning torch passed between the pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and then he lists a bunch of names I'm not going to butcher. Now, since we're told the Lord made a covenant with Abram, right? we're told that, it's safe to assume that the presence of God is manifesting itself in the appearance of this smoking oven and this burning torch. And in order to understand the symbols, keep in mind the covenant itself centered upon one singular promise, right? It was more to do than just Isaac. It was more than just the land. It was all about a savior. It was that belief that Abraham had that was accounted to him for righteousness. So with that in mind, that the covenant itself is really all about God sending a savior. That the fulfillment of these symbols will find in the person of Jesus. If the covenant is about Jesus, these two symbols are also about Jesus. Consider that Jesus, perfectly illustrated by this smoking oven. What did Jesus have to first do? He came to earth and he had to first endure a time of testing. Affliction. He had to endure a trial by fire. You might say the pressure cooker of life. Jesus was placed in the oven of suffering. Why? So that he might be able to emerge in the end as this burning torch. We're told that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, aside from the symbols, what is significant and more important about this passage? Note, note, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. But did you notice that it was only God, and the smoking oven, the burning torch that went through the pieces? That Abram didn't play a role here? That the Lord made a covenant with Abram and that that covenant didn't include Abram? No record of him going through these pieces, right? Now, Now to this point, David Guzik, he makes this observation, quote, the certainty of the covenant God made with Abram was based on who God is, not on who Abram is or what Abram would do. This covenant could not fail because God cannot fail. As Abram, we merely enter into a covenant by faith. We don't make a covenant with God. This covenant, God signs alone. Abram doesn't haggle with God over the terms God established. Abram accepted, meaning that Abram was unable to break a contract that he never signed. Let me repeat that. Abram was not able to break a contract he never signed. Understand this. Abram's fear that God might fail him was unfounded and completely baseless. There was no evidence that God would fail because there was no evidence he had ever failed before. But on the same token, Abram's fear that he would fail God, the irony is that it proved to be surprisingly pointless and irrelevant. Abram and God, this promise, this covenant, they didn't meet in the middle. Nor did the covenant demand that Abram walk through. It didn't demand his involvement. This work of salvation... God sending a savior would be completely dependent on God and he alone. It was dependent on God coming through. It wasn't dependent on Abram and his performance in any way. And why is that important? While God would never fail, Abram would just like us. Salvation, it's a work of God for man, independent of man, which is glorious. For if salvation was contingent on our performance, you and I would be in serious trouble every day. Abram, Abram, Abram was afraid that he'd fail God. But the reality was that his failures didn't matter. Keep this in mind, friend. Your spiritual success is only manifested because of your failure. Though you'll fail, and fail again, and again, and again, and again, And then you'll think you made it. And then that's pride. So you just failed again. (laughs) Though you're going to fail. This is what you should take heart at. Jesus won't. He never will. You'll fail all the time. But Jesus will never, ever, ever fail you. (laughs) Because you could never be good enough to uphold your end of the bargain. If there was such a thing, God left you out. You don't have a bargain. This covenant's on God. God provides a savior. God fulfills his promises. God wouldn't fail, which meant Abraham's failures mattered not. And this is why, this is why, any attempt to mask our failure, by employing these legalistic metrics, these church traditions, so that we can succeed, it only serves to detract from the fact that we're saved for only one reason. Jesus succeeded. It's not about you succeeding. It's about he succeeded. You see, grace concedes your failure by celebrating his suffering and his sufficiency. This morning, if you fear failing God, and that is a normal fear, I think we've all been there. Or if you've come to church defeated because this week just illustrated once again that you're a failure, that you have failed God, it's okay. It's okay. Because your failure is totally expected. The gospel. The gospel not only demands your failure, but the gospel is made all the more powerful because of it. You mess up, all you do is illustrate that the sacrifice Jesus made is all the more powerful. It's all the more sufficient. It works all the same. What is amazing and worthy of our celebration is that even when you fail and you fail God, God never fails you. How incredible it is that we just believe in the Lord. And it is the Lord that imputes onto our account his righteousness. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't maintain it. We just have to receive it. And even when we're afraid that we can't do that, he'll stay, still take care of it. Hey, that's why we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a real, a real good man like me. No, it saved a wretch and is saving a wretch and will save a wretch. It's all that God asks He saved a wretch like me. So, Father, Lord, we thank you.